Well, welcome everybody. Welcome. Thank you for coming to Sunday School. And uh, we're going to be talking about, we're continuing our, uh, our series on Christ. Today we're going to be talking about what's important about Him being fully man. I think it's going to be an interesting uh, conversation. Uh, we're going to ask some interesting questions and you are going to have to answer them. So, I know it's awkward in Sunday school to talk out loud, but I don't like it. But I'm going to ask you to do it. All right, let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll get going. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you grateful that we get to talk about these things. We get to talk about uh, who you are as uh, you have given us your Son, and we get to talk about your Son, Lord, we pray for uh, wisdom, we pray for uh, the ability to understand your word uh, as your spirit works in our hearts. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, a long time ago, um, I would ask myself the question, why, was, uh, why did everything get set up the way it is? Um, when you, you start asking yourself those questions, when people start um, making them sound dumb, do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, when the world starts saying, okay, well, how can the Bible make sense? Uh, you know, you tell us to obey these Ten Commandments, but why aren't we, you know, how come you're not forbidding us to eat shellfish? And, you know, why can I wear <laughs> nylon and cotton at the same time. You start looking at all these things going on in the Old Testament and these uh, things that were forbidden and now they're not forbidden. The cloven, the cloven hoof, chewing the cud. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? All right, all these things. And the way the world talks about them, they talk about them as if all these things are very alien things. And it makes them sound strange. Um, why is it that God had to send his son to die on the cross for your sins? Uh, doesn't that sound strange, a little barbaric? Uh, why couldn't he just make everything okay? Couldn't God have just said, your sins are forgiven, I have decided your sins are forgiven, uh, therefore they're forgiven. I mean, couldn't God do that? And this is something that people brought up back a long, long time ago. Uh, back in ancient Christian history, uh, they dealt with this question. Couldn't God have saved you from your sins in another way other than this bizarre, barbaric thing of sending a son who becomes human and then dies on a cross and has to be risen again? All these things don't we have a God that's so powerful that he could have just made it okay with a thought and forgiven you with a thought? Why all this pomp and circumstance and all that? Was that necessary? Have you ever thought about that? Yeah, yeah I mean, I, it's, it's something to think about because the world certainly is thinking about it. And they make it sound stupid, right? That's ridiculous. Um, they've even used terms like, um, what is that, uh, uh, 
deified uh, child abuse, child abuse or something, where the father sends a son to die and all that sort of thing. Um, and so then we we think about it, we think, well, no, it's not crazy because someone had to die for our sins. And then their response is, well, why? Why did someone have to die? I mean, isn't your God big enough that he could have said, well, no one has to die for the sins. I just forgive them. Why? I mean, Richard Dawkins comes along and describes God, the God of the Old Testament, because apparently there's, there's a difference, um, the God of the Old Testament as, a, as this uh, psychopathic, homophobic, and he goes on down the line, all these things that he is. Um, and how do we answer that? I mean, why, why, did, why did John 3.16 have to be around? I'll take a shot at it. Sure. This is just an allegory. But, <laughs> okay. You know, if you, have, uh, if you have kids and you give them everything, I don't know what I'm talking about. If you have kids and you give them everything and pay for a college education and pay for their cars and give them yeah. money as they go out, and sometimes they don't appreciate it, you know? Really? I know, but I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> That's shocking to me. I mean, my, my teenager is super grateful for everything we've done for him. He's just, whatever I can do for you, Dad, I just want to be a help since you've done so much for me. That's so strange. Just an allegory. Wow, okay, yeah. Wow, I don't even know how to respond to that. Never heard such a Okay, yeah, why, why blood? I mean, why couldn't... For the, for the holiness and the righteousness of God to be separate from that of sin, it takes a blood atonement to rectify what has been wrong. Okay, yeah, and, we, and, and as Christians, we look at that and we go, yes, it does take a blood atonement. But then someone from the outside of the family, someone that's not in our, in our family of God looks at that and says, well, why do you need a blood atonement? Why does, why does God the Father need blood atonement? The wages of sin is death. Okay. Yes? I'm going to give you the answer that I think I know you want. To be the covenantal <laughs> being. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> we'll figure out what's all that means. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. So if God just said, oh, I forgive you, it's okay, it's like sin isn't a big thing. Oh, okay. And so that he had to die for, you know, for all the reasons you guys are saying, but also so people who aren't Christians understand what was given to us, the yeah. loss of the son, the crucifixion, everything. It's a big deal. It's huge. It's yeah. a huge thing that happened, and the payment was huge. Right. So we have to. If we're not a Christian, well, both ways. But you know, especially not because you need to realize it wasn't just like uh, sins like this little dinky thing. And I'm sorry, it's okay that you did that. You know, yeah. it's like it's okay you, you know, you said no to me or something like that. It's yeah. Huge. Interesting. Right. Yeah. I like it's that. it's the only way he can go without contradicting himself. In other words, it it comports with his character. Yeah. Right. So if he were just to sins forgiven, there's no justice in that. He's a God of all justice. So it would be to betray 
So a when the when the unsaved world looks at God sending His Son to die, and that seems barbaric and foreign to them, it's because God's character is barbaric and foreign to them, right? Yeah. It's a statement about what they think about God. So what we're gonna find, what we're gonna look at today, is a close look at that question and what it means to us that. God became man, um, and the necessity of God, of God becoming man. So if you would, turn to Philippians 2, Philippians chapter 2, we're going to start, let me see, Ta-da. let's look at uh, verse 6. Um, and this is, a, this is a typical verse we use to talk about what uh, the Son did um, when he came to earth. Um, we look at verse 6 and it says, Who, speaking of Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself... Taking the form of a bondservant or a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. Okay. So, does anyone know the context of this verse? What is Paul talking about that he would bring up this thing that Christ did on our behalf? Paul talks about imitating Christ. Okay, yes. Imitating Christ. And what's why does he want everyone to imitate Christ? He's addressing humility. Yes. Yeah. Look at the um, the verses before it. Um, chapter or verse uh, three. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So this imitating of Christ is about your humility, and so what he brings up is this attitude which was in Christ when he, who was in the form of God, took on Flesh, right? He emptied himself. So the context is imitate Christ's humility. That's your first little blank there. His humility. This humility had a purpose. Okay? This humility was to show something. It was demonstrating something. Does anyone know what that was? Well, let me ask you this. In the context... Why is Paul telling everybody to have humility towards each other? What's the end goal? Why does he want us to be humble towards each other? Okay. And what was the purpose of that? Peace among brothers. Okay. Being in the spirit. Okay. Glorifying God. Glorifying God, that's yeah, that's right. That's the that's the end product. But the motivation behind it 
was that they love each other. Therefore, if there be any encouragement in Christ, if there be any cons- consolation of love, if there be any fellowship in the Spirit, these are all the answers I've been hearing, um, if any af- um, affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind. And so maintaining the same love, united in the Spirit, intent, uh, uh, and so the purpose and all these things had this motivation of love. This humility is for the purpose of demonstrating love for each other, love for God. And the illusion he makes is this humility is best understood in Christ's incarnation. That's your other point. So if he's going to show us how love is demonstrated... Through humility, the best way to show that was Christ's incarnation. So Christ emptied himself. How? Because what we got to be careful about is that we don't say things like, well, Christ emptied himself of everything, maybe except for love. Um, he didn't empty himself the way we think of emptying ourselves, right? Uh, you guys have coffee in front of you. If I were to ask you to empty that glass, what do you do? Drink it. You can drink it, right? <laughs> you can pour it out. There's lots of things you can do to get that glass to have, or that cup, to have less in it than it was before. Usually when we think of emptying, we think of what? Subtraction, right? Um, how does these? How does this verse talk about emptying? Does it talk about subtracting? Okay, so he emptied himself, comma. Right then, it's going to tell you how he emptied himself. But emptied himself, comma, taking the form. So now he is. Uh, emptying himself by addition, not subtraction. So Christ emptied himself by addition. Now that seems strange to us. Um, what we're seeing here is, in the last, uh, before this, he regarded equality with God a thing, uh, not a thing to be grasped, right? In other words, he doesn't come down saying, all right, everybody, my reputation is going to be uh, my deity. And so I am going to come down as, uh, with my reputation as God. And so everyone's going to see me as the authoritative God. But instead, he took something on. Someone that has, who is everything took on something that's less than himself, which is the form of a servant. This is a, an act of humility. Um, it is lo- um, so does he lose his deity? Let me, put it, let me ask you that. Did he get rid of his deity? No. What was that? That's right. So he added something that is, if we can put it this way, humiliating. Um, and he took on this likeness of men. The flesh, this humanity he took on, is identical 
to yours. He did not take on a kind of flesh, a kind of humanity that was a different kind of humanity than what we, ex- we have. It was identical. So Christ did not become a third thing. You have humanity, you have deity, and then you have Christ who took on this other thing. This weird alien thing that is neither God nor man. So his humanity is identical to ours. The purpose, Christ's Christ's humanity, the purpose of Christ's humanity was for the purpose of covenantal, what do you think? I'm going to say there. Why did he take on this flesh? What was that? Okay, redemption, that's right. Because he was going to give himself as a sacrifice, right? He was a covenantal sacrifice. Not just a sacrifice, but a covenantal sacrifice. That idea of covenant has to be there. Because the idea of sacrifice is not just this concept that's out there. It's tied to agreements. Right? That's going to be important later on. So, how human was Christ? Was our Savior how human would you say? Totally. Totally human. Okay. Uh, Luke 2 explains this to us. And I say this because uh, when I worked, uh, when I was going through college, I worked at a museum. It was a religious museum. It had the most religious art than any other museum in the Western Hemisphere, apparently. <laughs> That's the, that was the claim. There was a lot of Catholic art. Um, and in that art, there was lots of pictures, uh, paintings of babies. Um, and the baby was supposed to be Jesus. And the baby was always really creepy. <laughs> because the baby was doing things babies don't do. <laughs> So the baby is like standing on the lap of this woman and like doing these peace symbols. And he had like a globe in his hand. And I'm like, this is a weird baby. Um, because the baby wasn't really, it, didn't, it wasn't acting like a baby because in their view, the baby was, already had all this knowledge. and I mean, it just wasn't, wasn't a baby. Um, and so, uh, in fact, even in the legend that comes out in Islam, Jesus, when he was born, was uh, talking to Mary. Uh, so Mary had the baby, and I think, if I remember correctly, in one of the verses, uh, everyone is suspicious of the baby because the baby's talking already. <laughs> and... Uh, and why do they do that? Because they say, well, God came to earth, he took on this flesh, but he still was this... There was still this... Um, it was like God wearing a mask, right? It's like God puts on the clothes of humans, but isn't really human, because as a baby, he's talking to people, he's doing the peace symbol, he's, he's giving orders. <laughs> but he's, so he's kind of, you know, he's, he looks like... He's human, but he's not really human because humans don't act this way, right? He looks 
dependent, but he's not really dependent. Right, yeah. Yeah, someone had to carry him around. You may not be, he <laughs> couldn't walk yet, but he's, he's talking. <laughs> hey, Mary, how's it going? Um, so, <laughs> I'm hungry. <laughs> I'm hungry. Please feed me because I refuse to cry. That would be simple. All right, so, uh, <laughs> so he's, he really becomes this third thing, right? This weird thing. But in Luke 2, it doesn't talk about a baby like that, right? In Luke 2, uh, verse 7, And she gave birth to the firstborn son, and she wrapped him in, in clothes, right? And laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So she's having to take care of this baby um, the way anyone would have to take care of a newborn baby. So we see in Luke 2, 7 that he is born into the world. In Luke 2.21, we see he is circumcised into the covenant. In Luke 2.40 and 52, he grew, right, in mind and body and in favor with God and man, right? So he's growing, his mind is maturing. So he is not just dependent on the clothes that Mary puts on him, not just dependent on a grown-up to place him in a crib or a manger. Not just dependent on someone to circumcise him, but dependent on his mind to grow. The way we understand being a human being. His body grows, and he has to adjust to his body. The way we understand adjusting to our body as it grows. He has to gain reputation in the world. The way we understand gaining reputation in the world, where we grow in favor with other humans because we are trying to adjust to other humans. The way, the way everyone has to adjust to other humans to gain favor. In Galatians 4.4, he is born under the law. Christ has to be obedient, just like any other human being has to learn to be obedient. Now, Christ was different in that he didn't have the sin nature we have, right? But it doesn't change the fact that there is a process of obedience, right? A process of being under the law is a process of understanding it, adjusting your behavior to it, just like any other human would have to, right? Just like Adam had to. When Adam was, remember that word we learned last week? I think it was last week. Uh, probation. He had certain laws he had to obey because Adam, even though he was created perfectly, still had laws he had to obey. And he was under a probation to make sure he was going to follow those laws before the next step. He failed. The second Adam, we don't want failure, right? We are depending on him not failing. But part of that obedience is him growing and understanding and uh, placing himself under that kind of obedience. So he was born, circumcised, grew, and born under the law. All those things are just like us. Was he also tempted? Um, we, we know that he was tempted. Um, 
And the difference between Christ's temptation and our temptation, because we are under Adam, right? Because our, uh, because of our sin nature, we are tempted inside ourselves, right? We, um, when when we are tempted, it is a part of who we are that brings us. What is it, uh, James chapter two, uh, one or two? Um, that says we are led a, a, a astray by ourselves, right, from the inside. Christ was tempted from the outside and was able to resist temptation because of who he was on the inside. And so, we, so he was tempted in all ways, just like us. It says in all ways. So um, I don't understand exactly every portion of what that means, but I do know scripture says he was tempted in all ways, just like us. And took that on for our sakes. Now, why all this work from God? Why this way of doing things? Could Christ have come down to earth, shown us that sin was important because he took on flesh, but why did he have to die? Why did he have to be crucified? Couldn't he be put to death quickly with his head cut off? Why the suffering kind of death? Why a death that... Uh, required resurrection. Why couldn't he just become God again and that body turn to dust and not worry about that anymore? Why is it that before Christ came and took on flesh that you had all these laws about killing bulls and goats and uh, burning grain and uh, sacrificing, sacrificing, sacrificing. You had pigeons. You had all these animals. Life is in the Okay. which is the righteousness of Christ. It foreshadows the wedding feast of the Lamb. We're dressed in white, the pure deeds of the saints, all that good stuff. Yeah. It the wedding feast of the Lamb. So, yeah, there's a lot of symbolism going on, right? It's a lot of foreshadowing of what Christ would be for us. And that those, those sacrifices weren't enough for permanency. They were enough <laughs> just to cover until Christ came. The question I would get from people, especially from the unsafe world, is this question, and it's, it's a legitimate question, I think. Why this way? Couldn't there be another way? Could there be a bloodless way? I mean, God could do, and you hear this all the time, God could do anything he wants. So why, why this weird way of doing things that's so different than our culture then he sends a son, he has to take on flesh, he has to die. This seems strange that he's doing this this way. Um, so I want you to look. Um, well, I won't, I mean, you don't have it in front of me. I want to look at what the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 7, uh, article 1. I want to read that to you. I want you to think. What you, I want to ask what you think of this. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto Him as their Creator, 
Yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part. Okay, that sounds kind of convoluted. What it's saying is, the distance between God and man. Is God really that different from us? Yes. Right, that's the answer. That's something we learned from the past uh, Sunday School series on who is God. He is vastly different from us. He doesn't think like us. His ways are not our ways. He is a spirit. We have yet to understand what that means. Right? We understand body. We can kind of understand spirit with some kind of analogy in our mind of something that looks transparent, that flies around, but we have no idea really what that means. Right? Because it's really just another body that we're imagining that flies around that you can see through. Um, so it's hard for us to understand what spirit even means. Let alone the word infinite, what infinite means. We're so confused about infinite, we've convoluted it with mathematics to the point where you can have several kinds of infinity, infinity which makes absolutely no sense, So, which means we don't quite understand it at all. So this distance between God and man, his being and what we are, is so vast, how is it possible that we can understand him at all? Well, we can't. He would have to do something so that we could understand him. He would have to condescend. Remember I gave you that, that, um, that analogy of for a child, for a three-year-old, for my son uh, Jude to understand me. Sometimes I get down on his level and I use caveman talk for him to understand <laughs> what I want him to do. And even the things I want him to do, he doesn't understand all the reasons I want him to do it. He doesn't understand what I want him to become because I want him to obey mommy and daddy. He doesn't get any of that. But he does understand, okay, I need to put this back in my room and it's important that I obey mommy and daddy for some reason. So that's a small distance between three-year-old and 46-year-old. Right? There's a huge difference between God and man. So how does God condescend to us? That's the question. This is something philosophy has invaded into our world through Thomas Aquinas and made us believe that God condescended to man through reason. And we think that it's through reason we can get back to God. It's why in apologetics we think we can reason people back to God. It's because we think we can entertain people back to God. We think we can compromise people back to God by saying sin isn't really as bad as people say it is. Maybe we can be same-sex attracted and still be Christians. We can do all these reasonable things. We can be reasonable and then bring them back to God through that way. But God did not condescend to us through reason. Uh, This voluntary condescension was his pleasure to be expressed by way of Covenant. So if we have a God that's a triune God, that in his very being there is this unity of three distinct persons, there is a way in which we can understand that unity between distinct things. And God was pleased to show us this through a creaturely way of understanding this, which we call covenant, where distinct people can have unity through these agreements, through covenant. So the triune God 
created a covenantal reality. And this is what's difficult for our culture to understand because our culture still thinks we live in a rational reality where reason is king because philosophers have turned us this way and has turned Christianity this way. <laughs> but if you live in a covenantal reality, that changes um, a lot. It means the sacrifice of Christ and the way Christ was sacrificed doesn't have to do with what we think is rational or what we think would work or what we think God should be able to do based on our infinite understanding of reason. But rather, this is a reflection of something that's like God. The sacrifice having to be exactly this way tells us something about the, the foundational understanding of who God is in his being. That there's unity in the diversity and that these three persons have this fellowship together. And that fellowship has some kind of structure that we can't possibly understand. So God condescended in a creaturely way for us to understand unity through covenant. And that it wasn't just God's, God thought, oh, here's a way I will redeem the people. Why don't we, I'll send my son. That will really show him I love him. Yes, it shows us that he loves us. But it's a, this structure of sending his son, taking on flesh so that he is like us. And then crucifixion and then resurrection is all part of that covenantal structure God has placed inside this world. It's not just a way he decided to do it. It reflects something about him. The representative must be qualified to be a representation. In Leviticus 22, 17 through 25, it goes into great depth as to what kind of bull you can, you can sacrifice. It had to be perfect, had to be pure. The representative that you were going to place on that sacrificial um, altar had to represent perfectly, right? The perfect representation was one who had to be truly human. It couldn't be something else, okay? So the representative must be qualified to be a representation for who the, he was standing in for. The representative must be placed under the same conditions as those he represents. The representative must be placed under the same conditions as those he represents. That is important in a world, in a reality, that is a covenantal reality. Not a Thomas Aquinasian uh, logical reality, but a covenantal reality. The representative must endure all the covenantal demands. He must endure all the covenantal demands. That's why you see the bull having his neck slit, the blood pouring out, 
the body being burnt. All this has the idea of that the representative is supposed to be under those same uh, demands, those covenantal demands that mutilates the body. Which leads us to Christ. And this is the most important thing I want you to understand about this whole lesson, if you learn nothing else, this last sentence, just remember this. Jesus had to be identical to us in his humanity and identical to God in his deity to be an acceptable sacrifice. Why couldn't God just snap his fingers? Because he's not a monad. Because he's a triune God. He is a God that has some kind of, and I don't understand, no one understands it because he's God. He has some kind of structure of unity between him, between all three persons. I don't understand it. He condescended to us to help us understand it in a creaturely way where you have this unity of agreements called covenant. And that underneath all that is this love that these agreements are based on that unifies things that are diverse. And so we have Christ who comes to earth to unify with his people by taking on flesh. And he does this because of something about our God. Not just this is an interesting way to do it, but this reflects something about our God himself. And he takes on the flesh. And he's exactly like us in our humanity. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to grow. He knows what it's like to be an awkward teenager. He knows what it's like to do all these things because he was truly a human and truly fully God all at the same time. This was necessary for that sacrifice to have meaning. God was offended. Man needed redeemed. Christ had to be both for the sacrifice to be meaningful to the Father, to be meaningful to the triune God who has unity in his three persons. And that need, or that, I don't want to say need, because he has that unity, there has to be some kind of consequence for sin. And that consequence is a diabolical consequence, right? Because sin is diabolical. Um, the, the reason why a lot of people have a hard time with the whole sacrifice of Christ, right, is because they have a very, very light, uh, they have a Diet Coke idea of sin, right? It's, you know, it's, it's bad, you know, it's bad. I know I'm not supposed to do this, but... Because if you don't know your God, then how you offend him is unknown to you. And if how you offend him is unknown to you, it's because we what? We don't care. We don't love him. Right? Because in Romans chapter 1, we understand that we all know him. We just don't love him or give thanks. Um, With the last few minutes... I want to ask you some questions. Uh, Well, I want to see what, not ask you some questions, but see what kind of questions you have, because what I'm saying 
is a little confusing, I think, because it's so different than our culture. What do you think of this idea of the necessity of Christ taking on flesh to die for your sins? That this is the way it had to be because this is, it reflects who God is. idea of evolution is so prominent and um, so if, if there wasn't a specific Adam created who represented all mankind then it doesn't make sense that there needs to be a, a specific Jesus to represent all like the man representing you need another man to come and represent and mm-hmm. you can answer this you can make this sound better than I am but but I mean if we just sort of showed up you know over time if you don't have a specific start with a specific specific in Adam we all fell, yeah. then you don't need that whole representation to happen through Christ, right? Because it needs to be a, a man, it doesn't need to, all of the mirroring there doesn't need to happen. Yeah. Yeah, and we live in a time where we want to get rid of that as soon as possible because we believe in such strong idea of independence that it bothers us that someone would represent us and what they did would affect us, right? I mean, so what do they do? They say, well, we can get rid of the whole Adam idea because that's crazy. And now it becomes this, maybe God was just dealing with people in general. I have the same question in reverse for my family. My, my family, they're professing Christians, but they're also, for the most part, evolutionists. And I want to ask them, why, why do you need Jesus if, if there wasn't an Adam? Yeah. You know, we can all just sort of work this out on our own with God because you don't have a, you don't have a created federal head yeah. in Adam. At what point, why do we need a divine federal head? What's the point? Like, right. I want to ask them the same question that you're asking, that the world is asking us. I want to ask them, well, what, what's, what's the need? Yes, that's right. Because otherwise, Romans chapter, uh, chapter 5 becomes a major problem. Because it's saying, this is the pattern. I created, uh, I created Adam, and he represented everyone, and he failed. Therefore, now we have Christ who's going to represent his people. And if that pattern isn't real, then what does Jesus mean? Right? It doesn't, you know, Paul seemed to be mistaken that there was an actual Adam. Jesus was certainly mistaken that there was, an actual, there was a real Adam. So what are you left with? You're left with a book of everyone's mistaken because science has taught us something else and I don't know why we're believing it anymore. Right? Yeah, I, I had a problem with you saying that Jesus was tempted from the outside and not from the inside. That sort of makes him not man. But there comes a point where it's like he gets electrocuted on the cross all that sin that was external is now in, in him. He takes, he takes it on him. Yeah. Um, what I so meant he by... Knows, he knows what it is to be bad inside. Yeah. Um, when we say inside and outside, we tend to think in, term, in different terms than what, uh, what we mean in this sense. Okay. If I, uh, if I have a sinful nature, my nature is part of the temptation, right? Because I have a strong leaning already 
because I have a sinful nature that wants sin. Um, so that's what I mean by the inside. Um, Christ did not have a sinful nature um, because when we say nature, and this is another important thing, um, we're not talking like Catholics, where nature is this thing that got on you like mold and you can wipe it off with a baptism. When I say nature, it means who you are. This is you. Um, this was what Luther was saying, that he was, he realized he was sin. And so that's not who Christ is. Christ didn't have that nature, of, of that sinful nature. But he was still human. Um, and human just like Adam was human. And so when sin comes, he doesn't have an automatic pull towards sin because he is sin on the inside. But um, it doesn't mean that it wasn't a temptation coming from the outside, if that makes sense. But we can never say that Christ had a sinful nature because then we run into, um, then we're saying that God had sin. And I, I know you don't want to say that. Yeah. So, so that's what it means, because so, inside and outside has a tendency sometimes to be more um, allegorical. So I, so I, I know what but you I'm mean. I'm just yeah. saying that there was something that he was missing, but he got a full dose of it on the front. He got a full dose of sin upon his shoulders, that is correct, absolutely. But he never, be, he never uh, took on the sinful nature that we have. He was trying to redeem that, right? I think going back to your question on necessity. Yeah. When I when I think about what you taught here, the reality, mm -hmm. the covenantal reality, was necessary to all of us who are covenantal breakers. Mm -hmm. And I say that in that there's none of us in here who can say, I promise all the time to do mm -hmm. all that I say yeah. for any reason at all. We are completely capable of doing the opposite. Mm -hmm. So, to answer the question of the world, why? Why do you need this? Here it is. How could you not want this? How could you not want Christ who was not a covenantal breaker, mm -hmm. but a covenantal filler? something beyond our measure, beyond mm. our reality, you have to yeah. When you realize that you yourself are completely depraved mm. of ever fulfilling the promise that God has created. Yeah. And the only way to keep covenant with God is through His Son. Right. Yeah. That's great. All right. got to get moving. Uh, thank you for those questions. Good. Let me know if you have more. I'll be, I'll be here. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for your uh, compassion on us. That is uh, unexplainable. We thank you for the sacrifice that you gave because you love us. We pray for um, humility as we go into the service, that we will be eager for your spirit to work in our hearts. We will listen closely to the word brought to us, Lord. We pray for Chuck, as he brings the word, that you will guide his, his lips, guide his, uh, what he has to say, Lord, that we might humbly uh, reckon with the message he has to bring. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen.